0: I'm Dave Laird. I'm Matt Booker.
1: And I'm John Baskin, just hunkering down in the space between each heartbeat and making each heartbeat a wall and living in here, in the great concavity.
2: Uh (laughs) Yes, nailed it. Nice, John Baskin.
1: <laughs> okay, all right, only three takes. <laughs>
2: so thanks, uh, John, for joining us for episode 52. It's great to have you here, and uh, thanks everyone for joining us. John Baskin, you are an instructor and associate director for the MA program in creative publishing and critical journalism, that's a mouthful, Yeah. at the New School for Social Research, uh, you're based out of New York, New York. That's correct. Uh, that's right. Cool. And you're also the founding editor of The Point magazine, which is a thrice yearly magazine that looks at cultural, philosophical essays, criticism with the tagline. And I really like this. A magazine founded on the suspicion that modern life is worth examining. <laughs> yep. that's good. Very Socratic. <laughs> that's right. That's the point. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. And I think a lot of our listeners probably are already familiar with your book that came out in August 2019 last year, called "Ordinary Unhappiness: The Therapeutic Fiction of David Foster Wallace." So, thanks so much for joining us to talk about to talk about your book today. Our listeners probably also have seen some of your work appear in "Gesturing Toward Reality: David Foster Wallace and Philosophy," mm-hmm. which came out in 2014 on Bloomsbury. And you are a pretty prolific writer as well, you've got reviews on film, literature, politics, you've been in the New York Review of Books, the Chronicle Review, Los Angeles Review of Books, uh, lots of other places as well, and you earned a PhD in 2016 at the University of Chicago in social thought, and did your undergrad at, at Brown and finished in 2003 in history and English? Uh, Which also I did my undergrad in, so that's cool. Uh, uh,
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, as you saw, I recently wrote about my undergrad uh, English experience at Brown.
2: That's right. Yeah, and and we're going to look forward to talking about (laughs) that as well. Yeah, the hatred of literature from the Point Magazine Uh, about two weeks ago that came out.
1: Yeah, yeah. It's in the new issue. Do rounds on
2: Twitter. Yeah, that's awesome. It's a great read. Cool. Uh, So a couple of listeners actually were like champing at the bit to to have you as a guest on this show and they were like you got to get john on you got to get john on so we we're like yeah we already have his book like let's do this so one of them was w- named will hurst and he was messaging through instagrams like this is a, this has totally changed the way that i look at wallace's writing and it's essential stuff um so i was like okay awesome that's oh, a great wow. plug that's cool, that was before yeah. i got yeah. a chance to start reading it so that got me pretty amped up for it uh and then we have a listener a, a friend from chicago named dennis frank who uh, he's been to lots of Wallace conferences and uh, he's a great supporter of what we do here. And he was at your um, your seminary co-op bookstore interview conversation with Ben Jeffrey, and oh, he actually yeah. sent me sent me the audio recording of that, so I got to listen <laughs> to to that beforehand too. So lots of uh, lots of cool background stuff there for you, John.
1: Yeah, that's very cool to hear. You know, you, you write. Yeah. I mean, this is the first time I've published a book, and you, you never know yeah. uh, <laughs> where it's going to end up. You you really have no idea, you know. So it's it's cool to hear it's connecting with some people.
2: Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So um, before we get into like some of the specifics, um, maybe give us like a quick background to your history, how you got into Wallace, uh, why, how you came to, you know, write a whole monograph on him, stuff like that. Uh, Give us your Genesis story here.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I I first read, uh, I first encountered Wallace when I was in college. I think I read Infinite Jest. I remember reading it uh, yeah, in 2001, because I remember it was right around when Mm. the towers came down. Um, I was reading Infinite Jest, and, um, it was really, in a lot of ways, sort of my introduction to contemporary literature in general. Uh, you know, in school, I was very into modernism and reading, reading, uh, the classics and stuff, but, but Wallace was one of the first writers, really, that felt like, although he's a little bit older than me, but felt like sort of from my generation. Um, Mm. and, uh, Yeah, at the time when I first read Wallace, I still wanted to be a fiction writer, you know, like most uh, like most people. That was well, my first (laughs) my first dream was to be a baseball player. But then uh, then same here,
0: same here. Fiction writer,
1: fiction writer felt marginally more realistic, you know, at least for a few years. Um, And Wallace uh, actually, in the end, kind of uh, kind of ended that dream for me. Because I, I felt that the kinds of things that I'd really wanted to write about and what sort of my experience lent me to be able to write about, he, I, I found, had written about all of them uh, better than, than, than I could. Um, and so, you know, so over the next few years, I read, you know, I, I read a lo- I read all the rest of, of Wallace and... Um, and I, I continued for a while trying to be a fiction writer, but eventually uh, gave it up and realized I was I was better suited to write about fiction and film and culture um, and 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 sort of that was partly what led me back to graduate school uh, at University yeah. of Chicago. and um, my my program at University of Chicago is called social Thought. It's sort of like a great books PhD program. And so you oh it, cool. It's not really in a discipline. you read, Um, you know you read one book in most of the courses very closely but it could be Plato's Republic or Max Weber or uh, Saul Mm. Bellow or Dostoevsky Um, it could be it could be in any kind of discipline and one of the things um, there are a lot of people for various different reasons there that study this sort of question of literature and philosophy and the relationship between them and um, that was something that I had always uh, well that I felt as I started to learn more about it you know different conflicts and the question of what what philosophy and literature's relationship is that I that I felt Wallace was such a great writer to think about uh in relation to these kind of issues um and so uh even though he long predated my time getting to that program I mean I had read him years earlier I kind of kept returning to Wallace while I was there and um in addition to uh, well we also started the point while I was in Chicago and my the, my I wrote an article finally about Wallace for my first for my first issue for the first issue of the point. Um, and then, uh, and then, it's called um,
0: death is not the end. It's a fantastic yeah. article.
1: Yeah. yeah. And in a way that article holds the seeds of my whole book, really, you know, it's a 6,000 mm. word article that, that in some way is sort of the outline of my whole book and thinking about Wallace, partly from the perspective of Wittgenstein and in relation to postmodernism and kind of thinking about what he meant, uh, to our generation. And that, that was, that was, I think, written about two years after he died. And you know one one actually footnote to this is uh, in two thousand I got to Social Thought in two thousand seven, and Social Thought is, has a tradition of having novelists in the program. They they had Saul Bellow there, and that J M Coetzee was there until a couple oh. of years before I got there. And the first uh, the first couple weeks when I was there, uh, the professor that ran the program, Robert Pippin, pulled us all aside from the class. He said, "You know, we're looking for a novelist. Uh, do any of you have any ideas?" And, uh, I immediately suggested Wallace and funnily enough, it's just amazing that his reputation, you know, at, at the time, most of my professors had barely heard of him, had never read him. Uh, yeah. a few of them thought of him as a kind of comic novelist or maybe someone, one of the postmodern kind of like jokers that was, you know, there were a bunch <sighs> of them and, uh, um, like exactly, Lehner. exactly. Yeah. They didn't, he didn't have a distinct place in their mind, but I, but I sort of succeeded in getting a few of them to start reading him, and I remember, uh, I think Professor Pippin had told me he had just read brief interviews with hideous men, and they were he was he had presented it as a potential idea. And I don't know if Wallace would have been interested, but I always thought like he's from the Midwest, he loves he would be perfect for the program because he has this philosophical side, you know, and sure. um, and uh, and then he killed him, you know he he killed himself that uh, that summer of uh, 2008 and um and you know and so we, you know there was never it never went anywhere but i always sort of wondered if 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 they would have if they would have eventually offered him offered him a job it would have been amazing for the program also it's uh, funny yeah.
0: there's there's uh emails you know to bonnie Nadel, his agent in the, the archive here at the ransom center of him being same thing being invited to uh yale and a class mm-hmm. and being invited actually to the Michener center for writers here at uh university of Texas in Austin. And, uh, I actually, I didn't know that, that he, do you think he was actually formally invited and declined or it was just, Oh, no, idea? no,
1: he definitely was not formally invited. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they never got that far, but I think, and I think he was a hard sell kind of with some of the older professors, um, right. in the program, but, uh, but I did, I just wondered, you know, I mean, I know he was fairly happy teaching in the MFA program, but I also heard him sort of complain about getting a little bored teaching writing at some point. And I, I, and I, I
0: actually don't think he ever taught in the MFA program.
1: Oh, not MFA program. I'm sorry, at Pomona. Yeah. But he was teaching yeah. writing, no?
0: Yeah, it was undergrads. I mean, and he did yeah. a lot of, of creative writing classes, but also like intro to lit stuff. And I think he liked that better than... Teaching creative writing. Right. Um, I I wonder why. (laughs) Teaching other people's books.
1: Yeah. Um, Well, it was cool. I I mean, in in social thought, there was a tradition of like Saul Bellow and Alan Bloom teaching War and Peace together, you know, and I just, I could imagine (laughs) like, you know, Wallace getting, doing Dostoevsky with one of the philosophers there or whatever, you know, it would have been a cool opportunity. Yeah. Um, That would be rich. It's pretty, pretty good. Bros. K. Pretty
0: bittersweet to imagine, actually.
1: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, at the end of the t- at the end of my time in, uh, in social thought, I mean, I, I ended up doing my dissertation on Wallace and, and, and the book is, um, you know, is is to some extent carved out of out of a lot yeah, of the okay. work that I did that I did cool. on that. So your,
0: yeah, book, your, that. Nice. your book is titled Ordinary Unhappiness, and, and it's about therapeutic fiction. And one, you know, one thing that jumped out to me when I first heard about your book Uh, that I thought was super interesting was this focus on therapy because I feel like that personally that gets to the heart of a lot of Wallace's fictional project or that gets to the heart of what he was trying to do in Infinite Jest especially. Um, So I would like you to, for people who haven't read the book, just to lay out a little bit about what you mean by therapy in this context Um, because, you know, for someone in therapy it might be different than therapeutic fiction. So could you start there and just lay out why you wanted to kind of centralize that idea?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm working with a fairly specific kind of idea of therapy, although I think it has, it's not, it wouldn't be totally unfamiliar to most people. Um, and, you know, the title of the book, Ordinary Unhappiness, uh, which I was very happy, excited about when I, <laughs> I really like the title, um, because it comes from the Freud quote um, at the end of Studies in Hysteria, someone says to Freud, you know, how can you, how can you um, make the lives better of all these people for whom so much of their unhappiness is based in their circumstances and their fate? You know, it's not just in their head. And Freud says to this person, well, you'd be, you know, never underestimate how big of a difference it makes to return people from hysterical neurosis to ordinary unhappiness. <laughs> and um, and I, I felt that that sort of cut to the heart of something in Wallace's books um, you know yeah. in, in terms just of just good
2: old good old-fashioned ennui, you know
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah. I think so much of what he's writing about and so many of his characters and so much of the drama in his books have to do with people who take sort of um, mundane practical or everyday problems and make them much bigger in their heads. Uh, and then are trapped in them, you know, are sort of trapped in what their heads make of them. And uh, you know, to go back to the Gately quote, it's it's what your head can make of it all and 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 Gately concludes, but you could choose not to listen to your head. Um, but I think a lot of Wallace's fiction testifies to how hard that is, you know, it's it it's not just an easy choice to make. And so in the sense that um that I conceive of his fiction as a kind of therapy, I guess it's, it's related to that idea that his fiction is, is, is a way of sort of helping us um, return from hysterical misery to ordinary unhappiness. But, uh, (laughs) but there's also, I mean, there's also a very specific, um, uh, you know, uh, reference I have in mind, which is, which is from Wittgenstein, who's, you know, well known to have had a a major influence on Wallace. I'm certainly not original in, Mm -hmm. in stating that, although I think that, In my book, I make the claim that while in the past sort of Wittgenstein's been seen as influencing Wallace in certain ways, being the inspiration for some themes in his fiction, that I'm sort of making an argument for actually a much uh, deeper connection between them, which is a kind of uh, a kind of similarity of their whole intellectual project. And I think I say at one point Wallace sort of uh, continued of uh, Wittgenstein's form of philosophy and other by other means. Through his stories, Mm -hmm. and what I mean by Wittgenstein's form of philosophy is very much summed up in this quotation that I have in my introduction. That I promise I won't read many of this, but many of these. But I think this one's really (laughs) helpful, uh, where Wittgenstein says in the Investigations, "The real discovery is the one that makes me capable of stopping doing philosophy when I want to, the one that gives philosophy peace, so that it is no longer tormented by questions which bring itself into question." There is not a philosophical method, though there are indeed different methods, like different therapies. That's um, a slightly truncated version of the quote, but but this was sort of Wittgenstein's idea that that the point of philosophy was not so so much to solve the problems, you know, what is truth or what is. Uh, you know, justice or sincerity so much as to bring attention to the to the circumstances in which they get brought up in our everyday lives and in our everyday language and therefore to return us from these sort of metaphysical quagmires to Mm -hmm. uh, to to ordinary problems, which we can actually solve uh, once they've been brought back into their, uh, as he liked to say, from their metaphysical to their everyday uh, usage. Um, Mm -hmm, and so essentially the book is arguing that Wallace, you know, for a specific kind of audience, uh, you know, a, a 20th century, uh, you know, um, an audience with a certain kind of education and a certain American, you know, presumptions about what passed for sophisticated thinking. Um, and, uh, he, he was trying to do this for this audience, which he, thought which he you know judged correctly despite their education and their privilege in many cases were very unhappy much of the time and uh were very yeah. lost as he liked to say
0: mm-hmm. that that question though going back to that wittgenstein quote um there are indeed different methods like different therapies i mean to me this is um uh, really central to the book and it's really central to what wallace is doing and like maybe it's really hard for me to separate out some of this from uh, maybe some of Wallace's own experience with therapy and Mm -hmm. especially in Infinite Jest with AA. Although I thought a lot of what you did in the Pale King chapter was interesting as well. And uh, I want to, I'm kind of jumping around a little bit here because this idea of therapy, you know, my question for you uh, related to that is a little bit of like, is therapy supposed to be something that you get access to in order to resolve your own problems or is it something that is given to you as a solution to problems um that he he says there's different therapies right there's different philosophical methods therapy in my experience is like not as didactic as it's portrayed to be sometimes mm-hmm. and you have this great line in the pale king chapter talking about um Wittgenstein's prohibition against direct ethical appeals mm-hmm. in the work and to me those seem very related so i, I want to ask you like in therapy in this context and in other contexts you know how do you how do you resolve that or what could you just speak a little bit about that tension between being told what to do and figuring it out for yourself.
1: Yeah, so I mean, Wallace uh I guess, I mean, so I, I guess I I see as intrinsic to therapy is it's not the same as just being lectured at or just getting advice. I mean, there's there's uh one of the sort of ideas of Freudian talk therapy is that the patient can understand their own problem. And um, and 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 can tell you sort of why you know they do the things they do, and and this will help them. Um, this will help them, uh, you know, get over the problem or get through it. And I think that uh, so so I think you're already then outside of the realm of sort of directly telling you you know here's how you have to behave. Now the interesting thing in Infinite Jest though is. I mean, I'll I'll just use Infinite Just as an example to try to bring out what I think is some of the sort of nuances of how how Wallace thinks of therapy. So in Infinite Just, right, you have Hal early in the book go to the grief counselor after his father dies. And this Mm -hmm. is, in a way, the portrayal of the kind of therapy that, you know, a sort of uh, your garden-variety, privileged, educated uh, Wallace reader would think of when they think of therapy. I go to a therapist... You know, they help me work through my emotions. They explain to me that it's because of something that happened to me when I was a child or that my parents uh, mistreated me or whatever. And Hal just kind of laughs at the grief. I mean, he makes, he, he mocks the grief counselor, and it's a very funny scene where he pretends to have a big breakthrough and the grief counselor's very happy, but it's all, you know, it's all a joke. And and, and there are actually scenes like that strewn throughout Wallace's fiction. I mean, in The Depressed Person and in... In in brief interviews, there are scenes in Pale King of, of what I call failed therapy, failed talk therapy,
0: Well, in Broom of the System, there's like family theater, family therapy as theater as well. Yeah, I mean,
1: you sort of get the sense from his books that Wallace probably grew up in a family, actually, like I did, where therapy was like, it was almost assumed, of course you're going to go to therapy. And all of our conversations are also a form of therapy. You know, uh, my mother was always trying to give me therapy. Let's talk about your feelings (laughs) and this and that and, and analyze them. So, you know. I think that Wallace was uh, was sort of working with the 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 suspicion that a lot of his readers and that and certainly it shows up in his characters are these people that sort of know the game of therapy so well that it's really the game of of that kind of therapy so well that it's not. Uh, None of it's very surprising to them and none of it's very helpful and, and Hal is, you know, makes a joke out of it. Now, contrasted to that in Infinite Jest, you have the Alcoholics Anonymous segments with Gately and with um, you know, his peer group. And I always thought the sort of and, and in fact this was my experience the first time I read the book when I was twenty-one. You know, I loved the Hal sections, I loved the Tennis Academy stuff, thought those guys were all hilarious brilliant kids you know I wanted to be just like them even though they were depressed and um and uh, that just proved how smart they were and um and meanwhile the AA sections I'm like I thought it was kind of boring and hokey yep. and why do I care that much about this stuff and it was so you know when I when I came back to the book and I and I had some conversations with people in between where I particularly one of my someone I worked for uh in Chicago after college who said to me oh no the the, the AA sections—that's actually the most important thing Wallace ever wrote, and and you need to go back to it. And uh, and and when I read the book the second time, when I was—I don't know—in my mid twenties by then, and I really had a completely different experience where I saw that really the heart of what I think Wallace had to say to his readers was in those AA sections and that AA, in fact, was in Wallace's hands. And I, you know, I speak of Wallace's AA because I, uh, you know, I don't have a lot of experience with AA myself. I don't know how accurate it is, but at least AA as Wallace um, portrays it is, is a form of therapy also. And in many ways, a much more challenging and, um, effective he thinks form of therapy than the forms of talk therapy that Mm -hmm. um that his characters and probably his readers are more used to and the argument my book makes is that um the aa sections not only are the heart of sort of wallace's ethical appeal to his readers or therapeutic appeal but also are the place where you see wittgenstein's philosophy most vividly um it's Mm -hmm. the place where um you see a kind of way of thinking being encouraged, which is not dependent on certain assumptions that sort of rationalist modern philosophy has made about what makes for effective thinking, going back to Descartes. And this was something that that um, that Wittgenstein wanted to challenge in his own writing. And when he was saying philosophy is not a method or a solution, it's a set of therapies, I mean, that's an enormously challenging thing to say to within the sort of Western philosophical tradition that was, that was, you know, completely antithetical to what people thought, you know, uh, going back to Descartes philosophy was supposed to be doing, it was supposed to be solving these very difficult problems. And, 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 you know, and so, uh, I think that AA, I mean, yeah, I don't know how much detail to go into about it, but, but I make the argument in my book that AA sort of tracks, actually, in Wallace's portrayal of it as a, as a philosophical therapy in the sense that Wittgenstein meant the term, um, and it addresses the problems of, of Americans, the kind of Americans that are in his novels, much more effectively than does the, the more conventional kinds of talk therapy that show up in what? the books.
0: And, and that completely answers my question. And where I was getting with that is that a lot of the conventional therapy, especially what Wallace probably grew up with in the 1970s, early 1980s, was very much still in that Freudian mode of let me describe the problem and just talk about it. And, you know, the therapist sits there and strokes their beard and says, hmm, tell me more. Um, and that, that, that appeal of AA is that there is a direct ethical Instruction, right? They're saying no. Here's twelve steps, and you need to do every one of them. Ever, you know. Here's what you need to do. um And what I what I loved about your book was that you show. I think that you know Wallace's fiction wants to do more than just reflect alienation and, discon- and disconnection from the world, but actually treat it. And yeah. like, what well, what does uh-huh. that treatment look like?
1: Well, that was so. I mean. I one of the in terms of treating alienation I mean so I think one of his sort of observations about the 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 generation of fiction writers that had preceded him which let's just call the postmodernists um for, right. for yeah, that works <laughs> for, for for ease um you know John Barth the metafictionists this this kind of whole, Delillo Pynchon um you know, he actually saw a kind of structural analogy in a way with the Freudian case we're just talking about. Postmodernism was a sort of Freud, well, I wouldn't say a Freudian approach, but it it took an approach to culture that he used to say was all about etiology and diagnosis. We're going to keep sort of, if, if we can just name all the causes of our cultural distress, you know, capitalism, the, uh, imperialism blah blah you know all all the various things
2: colonialization you know
1: yeah yeah bureaucratization all this kind of stuff um there was this there was this sort of what he actually called beneath all the cynicism of of postmodernism, a kind of naive faith that by that by sort of naming all these things we would somehow then move beyond them and you know he articulates this very clearly in the television essay um and uh and I think that he and it was similar in a way to the sort of the sort of uh, fantasy therapeutic scene we have of like, oh my god, I hit on the thing that was causing my problem, and now I'm now I'm able to be free of it. And I think he saw that this really was naive, both in the personal and the cultural sense. And um, so, you know, in terms of he he wasn't interested in having a fiction that just once again sort of reflected and commented on and made us notice our alienation and our lostness and our, you know, dehumanized culture, that for him was not, um, you know, and, and that, that for him really wasn't worthy of what, of what art, what he thought art could do. And I think he thought it was a kind of ethical failure of the previous generation that they had just kind of reiterated these points over and over again. And, um, You know, left left their left their readers, I think he thought in a very dark place in a way or maybe even Mm. in a darker place than where they found them. Um, (laughs) They sort of made these problems seem even more insoluble, you know, in a way. Yeah. uh, than than uh than they than they might be, and so yeah, so I think he he saw it as a real kind of ethical responsibility as an artist to go beyond um what they had done. Now I think on the flip side of that, he was also always very wary of coming off as as overly moralistic. Um, and I talk about this a little bit in my in the Pale King chapter. And I think actually he was rightfully wary of that. I think there were times when Wallace could kind of let his inner moralist came out come out and it was it was not <laughs> always the most attractive um, look for him. But, uh, and that's why I think in a way the therapy, the Wittgenstein's therapeutic idea was so attractive to him because it was a way to kind of help his readers work through some of these problems, um, and, and free themselves from the sort of frames of thinking that he thought were so damaging and were keeping them from clearly seeing what they were going through and how, how to get out of them. Um, but without necessarily being, like you quoted the thing about Wittgenstein being being wary of direct ethical appeals, without saying to them, you know, you must behave this way or you must take responsibility. You know, he, he I think he was he was always worried about about doing that.
0: Hmm. Um, I was gonna say that's a good kind of segue into a question I wanted to ask you about institutions and sort of AA as an institution, as a community I mean, I think Dave and I have a special interest in community because we've found one or, you know, been part of one as the, like, the Wallace Studies community for Uh a long time Um, but I actually think you know, that, that AA was sort of the perfect community for Wallace because of a lot of things that it did not do and, you know, AA has these traditions and one of them is like you know, AA does not Provide opinions on outside issues. It doesn't keep membership records. It doesn't make a medical diagnosis. It doesn't, you know, provide housing for you. Like AA is a very limited set of kind of boundaries of a, what of a community or an institution is. But I I think this is one of the most interesting parts of your book is like Wallace's interest in sort of being a somewhat traditional Mm-hmm. I don't know, writer or person. How would you categorize that?
1: Yeah, well, I—I I mean, I think I said, it, I think I say this in the first essay I wrote about Wallace that you know, when when I when he was still alive, there was always this line about him, like he was this over clever postmodernist. You know, this is what all the older critics thought of him. And in fact, like if he if he has a potential vulnerability, it's much more in the other direction that he actually. And I think this is more or less recognized now. But you know, he he. Yeah, he had a there was there was a part of him that was more like kind of the late Tolstoy that was a kind of like a kind of moralist and traditionalist and um, so yeah, I think that w- one other thing I would add, I mean, I I totally agree with what you said about his attraction to AA and some of the things, some of the limits it placed on itself that I think he appreciated. But one other thing I think that was important about it to him was it was something that um, because you know there's this question like why didn't he just talk about church for instance? I mean he could have he could have written more about religion more directly uh, or mm-hmm. or these other forms of communal life that that are that are around. But I think um, he liked that AA also had sort of arisen in response to a particular modern problem, addiction, you know something that kind of I think he felt was a product of modern life. And even though AA had a lot of connections with the church, it was also sort of bounded and, and done in response. And, you know, going back to the Wittgenstein thing, it was this idea that, like, this was a, a specific response to a, spe- to a specific problem. Um, it wasn't sort of claiming itself to be the solution to every problem. Uh, although I do think, obviously, he thought it had an application for many people who are not addicts. but. Uh, but I think that um, that was another thing that he that he appreciated about it yeah.
0: yeah our buddy Rob Short who's been on the show a couple times he did his PhD on Wallace and the big book mm-hmm. and you know one of the revela- well, kind of revelations in there uh, to me was that you know AA was founded pretty early on in sort of modern American malaise I would say and it uh, you know, the solution was really like a religious experience. Yeah. Like The guy, the guy who found that it said, you know, how did you do this? How did you break out of this addiction to alcohol? And the guy said, you know, it's, I had a religious experience. That's all the only way to describe it. Um, and I think that that is um, central, you know, to, to Wallace's fictional project as well. And that yeah. he would have been a different writer, You know, before and after he went through recovery in Infinite Jest. And, um, you know, I have a a lot of questions for you about that sort of change. And you talk about it a little bit uh, in the Pale King chapter, especially with the sort of, I don't know, epiphany of Chris Fogle. So Mm -hmm. I wanted to ask you about, you know, we've talked a little bit about direct ethical appeal. What do you think changed between Wallace and Infinite Jest and the Pale King?
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I, I, you, you, I mean, you guys actually, having looked at all the archives and stuff, may may know a lot more about this than me. I mean, I, I can, I, yeah. it's, it's hard. I mean, he clearly was was sort of um, really searching. I feel like as a writer after brief interviews. I always, I, I'll just say, I mean, my sort of macro sense of Wallace's later career is that he i really felt like after brief interviews there was a part of him that sort of wanted to stop writing about the same kinds of problems of self-consciousness or i think i refer to them uh in pale king as the problems of adolescence although i don't mean that in a pejorative way i think the problems of adolescence uh remain with us our entire lives and wallace saw that (laughs) but but i think that there was a part of him that um wanted to break free of that and begin writing more about what you might call the problems of maturity, um, you know, to write a little bit more like a Tolstoy or a Dostoevsky about Mm -hmm. marriage and love and death and these kind of things that, that you start to sort of, uh, uh, like
2: duty and monotony and how those are related. Like the, some of the stuff in this is water about just what it's like to live a dull, repetitive groundhog Esque kind of adult life yeah it's very like much in the pale king you know like so as he gets older you kind of see that creep into his his work and his ethos i think
1: yeah for sure i think there was a desire to, to, to try to deal with the challenges of adult life um mm-hmm. as he saw them but uh but i think it was a struggle i mean i think for various reasons you know for a lot of reasons we can only sort of speculate on and you see him with oblivion there's sort of a sort of uh, feels like he's jumping around a bit and, and felt like maybe that was supposed to be a novel, but it didn't happen and and obviously he never finished The Pale King and um So yeah, I mean I think the Pale King, as I say in the chapter, it, it clearly has it, it moves a lot closer to a bit more of a kind of direct spiritual uh, appeal than his earlier books. There's more things in it that are, I think, on the edge of sort of moralism a little bit. It's a more sort yeah. of directly moral book, I think, than, mm-hmm. than Infinite Just is, even though they're, you know, obviously I think Infinite Just is a very morally important book, an engaged book, mm-hmm. but I think Pale King is sort of much more direct in the kind of appeal it makes and, and, and the kind of what it's sort of willing to say about what what makes for a valuable life, or person, or or a good person, as the as the that one chapter that got broken out in the New Yorker, I, I think it's called "Good People," right? Um, yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I mean, yeah. My sense was that Wallace was sort of groping in that direction and trying to, hmm. trying to uh, find his way out of the problems of adolescence and into the problems of maturity. But I'm not sure he ever fully got there.
2: Yeah, you uh, you quote Jonathan. Raban is saying that there's like a fundamentalist streak in the Pale King, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) you know, and like you say that it galvanizes readers with a quasi ascetic vision of life to be ecstatically lived. Um, So there's like this very monastic uh, sort of enterprise going on in the Pale King, uh, which you know, lots of some other... Scholars have sort of dealt with as well. Like Michael O'Connell has written about the was it the Noonday Demon mm-hmm. in the Pale King and how it relates to like um, the monastic tradition, the medieval period. Like, <laughs> so yeah, there's a lot of like very um, religious kind of Jesuitical stuff going on there. That and I think you're right that it's more upfront in in the sort of ethical stuff that it's trying to push than Infinite Justice.
1: Yeah.
0: and in the um part about the pale king i I really liked that you um you kept the focus a little bit on the, the philosophical investigations uh and and the sort of stuff you have in there about adolescence and the focus being on a child um and i'm thinking actually about the part about meredith rand i mean you call i think you called the fogel section like the philosophical heart of the book which i totally agree with and i Mm -hmm. think it's one of the best things wallace ever wrote Mm -hmm. um but meredith rand is the one she's in therapy or she's been through a lot of therapy and she's telling this story to fogel about uh she had set up a neat little trap for herself do you remember she's uh I'm, I'm looking at your book on page, like, 116. Yeah, she's
1: talking, she's not talking to Fogle. I think she's talking to the, to the... Trinian, To the, Rand is talking right. to the guy. Right, right, right. To her, the guy who the, the she late ends night up kind of saving her, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, the late night attendant. Um, yeah. But all of this is mm-hmm. in the context of her being at the bar and Fogle right. there. Right, okay. Um, but still, that that sort of um, trap that she set up, it seems very juvenile and it's almost like Wallace is looking back at a juvenile version of himself. Mm-hmm. And that kind of gets to what you guys were saying earlier about Wallace being more mature. And, you know, we talk about this all the time with, with infinite jest as I'm the same way. First read, you love, Howlin' Cendenza and I want to skip over everything else. Just get me more of Howlin' Candenza, right? <laughs> yeah, and please, then, and,
2: and, no more Steeply. Just, just tennis. Yeah, just give right. me the, just give me the tennis academy, tennis academy. Tennis academy. Yeah. And then
0: when you're like, if you read the thing at 40 years old, you're like, oh fuck, this is actually a thing about Don Gately. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. It's really about trying to live with what I think you just started out the this conversation today talking about the kind of the modern condition. You know, it's sort of a low grade anhedonia a low-grade you know insomnia a low-grade depression that's just a modern condition <laughs> and and it's like how do you escape this um this puzzle and i think wallace uh, uh deals with this in a lot of different ways one thing i had not thought of until i read your book was when i was reading that bit about um philosophy and meredith rand was like shit does he's trying to reference ayn rand <laughs> like, is there any connection there? Like, I never heard anyone mention that. But I guess I want to get you talking more a little bit about philosophy and, like, come back to, like, what are the philosophic stakes here and, you know, the, the, the philosophic problems that he's addressing that we haven't mentioned so far. And, uh you know, w- what jumped out to you from looking at through that lens?
1: Well, t- I mean, to take off from the Rand example that you mentioned, I mean, if I remember correctly, that, I mean... Th- the issue is a big part of her issue has to do with this notion of the deep self, right where she where she sort of is talking about she's always talking about her deep self and how it's and and and, and somehow this is related to her unhappiness that shes sort of divided herself into kind of you know the Meredith Rand on the surface and the Meredith Rand who's deep down and the deep down Meredith Rand can never express itself properly. And, and, and this is what, this is a cause of a lot of her unhappiness. And of course, Infinite Just begins with the sort of, um, you know, hyper uh, uh, aggravation of this problem, where you have Hal sitting in the tennis, uh, you know, at, at the meeting with the tennis people at, at University of Arizona, and he literally can't. He says, I am in here. He's inside, but he literally can't communicate with them. He tries to communicate, and all that comes out is, is, is these horrible sounds, and he gets wheeled out. And I think that—so um, I think I, this notion, this kind of—I uh, think—so one way to think of that, you know, if you're sort of inside the picture that Rand and, and Hal— are in, is that life is just inherently tragic. We have these deep selves. We can't communicate with them, at with other people about them. We don't know if other people have selves. We never see them. At best, maybe we, you know, brush up against them, you know, in communication. But really... Uh, life is is bound to be disappointing, and if not much worse, and um, <laughs> and I think that one of the things this is and this is something that Wallace and Wittgenstein really shared because Wittgenstein was very much uh, interested in this, what he called picture of 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 um you know the way of life or of or of ourselves, and I think that. For Wittgenstein, a big part of it is once you realize that that is a picture and not just the way things are, and you may actually have a different picture of how human beings communicate or how you relate to your inner self, or you may have a picture that doesn't include an inner and an outer self. Uh, You know, Wittgenstein famously said that the human body is the best picture of the human soul, Um, you know, and... um, so I think that was that's actually one of the really deep philosophical stakes of, of Wallace's fiction that you see this you could call it a Cartesian or a dualist model of 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 it of, of, of the self that comes up throughout the fiction and for Wallace because he's a fiction writer f- first and I mean well we can talk about I, I I sometimes refer to him as a philosopher but because he writes fiction or writes stories. For him, this is not confronted as a philosophical problem, but as a problem that in the first place causes unhappiness among people in all kinds of concrete ways that his fiction documents. And and that is exacerbated by the kind of therapy that we talked about earlier, the the Freudian therapy where you're constantly or at least the the caricature of the Freudian therapy where you're constantly talking about your deep self and, you know, your unconscious and this and that. And so I, I really think one of the that's that's one of the deepest stakes of, of his fiction is that and that's one of the things his therapy is meant to address, is this picture of the self that he thinks has um, become almost habitual among uh, sort of uh, sophisticated 20, you know, readers of kind of people who would read his fiction, and that's demonstrated in characters like Rand and Hal, but that is actually, he thinks, uh, counterproductive for happiness in all kinds of ways. And I think in various ways, in the AA sections of Jest, you see a very different model of sort of uh, the self emerging.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you kind of point to this when you talk about institutions um how we see like with Enfield Tennis Academy and when Wallace writes about MFA programs they fail to provide their members with any kind of semblance of meaning because they're tied to like you say capitalist values individualism competition whereas the communities of AA and the IRS and the Pale King uh like deeply call these into question and and have a, a sense of community instead and of you know fraternity and things like that
1: yeah that the um, that the self is social you know and that the self yeah. is, is shaped you know i mean wittgenstein it's in many ways i always read one of wittgenstein's sort of like broad broadly speaking insights was all these philosophers focus on how hard it is to communicate with language you know and how bad language is at communicating <laughs> yeah. what we really think and feel and he sort of turned it around and kind of said like isn't it amazing that we can communicate anything at all? And you know, look at look at actually all the things that like language does allow us to communicate. And look at all the various ways even with like the tilt of an eye or the or I can point at something and you can know exactly what I'm pointing at. And like, mm-hmm. you know, th- there are all these things we do with language that are actually like incredible. You know, and if you it just it's like it's like it's like the philosophers decided on some kind of perfect standard for what would for what would count as being a successful exchange. And then everything <laughs> fell short of it. But, you know, and I think and so I think, yeah, like that's part of the point of like, do we have institutions um, with the institutional point? I think Wallace felt that AA was something that was sort of recalibrating what we were even looking for, and yeah, sort of built from the ground up an idea of the self that was already connected to these other people, and this whole language everyone could speak that communicated a lot of things, you know?
0: Uh-huh. Well, in that communication part, uh, you mentioned the professional conversationalist scene with Hal and his father, <laughs> and, you know, there's this weird disguise, and especially the inability with parents and children to communicate uh and for you know many drafts up until really till the final draft that was the opening scene of infinite jest oh really Uh, and it was not until the final draft that he moved that about 40 50 pages in and started with this i am in here scene and uh i really like the stuff that you pointed out as that being a, a really philosophical statement and uh, you know, a philosophical problem. And that's whenever uh, I think that you start really delving into a lot of the stuff with Stanley Cavell, and we haven't brought up Cavell yet. Mm, yeah. uh, so, uh, you know, at that point, you say something like, um, you know, this dynamic motivated Cavell to call for philosophy to turn to literature as if literature had something to teach it about accepting or acknowledging the inescapable ambiguity of what he called the human.
2: Mm-hmm. So...
0: To me, it's just too perfect for scholars that, you know, Wallace was registered for a Stanley Cavell class at, <laughs> yeah, at, at Harvard. Right. Um, although I remember, uh, you know, I did some research assistant work for DT Max on the, the biography. And um, Stanley Cavell has no memory at all of
1: David Foster. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, well, really? it didn't, didn't Cavell, <laughs> didn't Wallace leave the class after like a couple of class periods because he said they were all just talking nonsense yeah. or something?
0: Well, he just said in the back. I mean, he was in a very bad place mentally. I think yeah. it, was a, it was an excuse, but I, I, we emailed uh, Stanley Cavell and was like, you know, do you, do you remember anything fall 1989 or whatever? And he was like, nope, don't never <laughs> met the guy, no, no memory. But it's too perfect, right, that Wallace clearly um, knew him and, uh, yeah. and sat with him. So let's talk a little bit about the importance of Cavell to your work and why you brought him in at that point.
1: Yeah, he gets a lot of (laughs) airtime. Well, there were a couple reasons. I mean, one is just that, I mean, Cavell, I think, is obviously an incredible interpreter of Wittgenstein. And one of the things I think he does with Wittgenstein is he sort of shows how much of what Wittgenstein wrote in the context, in what might be taken as a context of sort of, a fairly, um, academic or, or high level conversation with other analytic philosophers, um, or the metaphysical tradition even, I think that Cavell really wanted to show the sort of everyday, uh, more concrete kinds of, um, things that, that Wittgenstein could, uh, could help us think about, you know, and, uh, so so that was sort of one, one aspect of it, because I think in a, in a different way, Wallace also does this. I mean, not through analyzing Wittgenstein, but through, you know, uh, exploring some of his themes and some of his methods through fiction. So I think in some ways, they're doing something similar. I, I, I like to think of them as sort of the two great Greatest interpreters of Wittgenstein, um, uh, Wallace and Cavell, because I think you know Cavell basically said stop doing analytic philosophy, and then you had all these people do all this analytic philosophy to right. to you know tell you what he was really saying, what his real theories were. His whole point was I don't have theories, I have therapies. Use them, and uh, mm-hmm. and 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 I think actually Cavell and Wallace. I mean that's a little simplified, but I but I think Cavell and Wallace. Really took uh, took the line about different therapies seriously and saw saw what it meant that it was not just a kind of minor point. This was this was a, a proposal for a whole different way to do uh, to do philosophy. Um, the other reason, yeah, I mean, going back to the quote you mentioned, Cavell was very interested in literature, and the reason um, the way in which he was interested in it had to do with this notion that philosophy, when it um, Sort of, uh, he liked to say when it, it, you know, it banished literature going back to Plato and, and there was this question, could it, could it allow it back in? And I think he thought that the banishment of literature from philosophy, particularly from modern philosophy was sort of coextensive with its kind of, uh, picture of itself as a fundamentally theoretical discipline, uh, in some ways analogous to science that was, uh, trying to sort of create, um, uh, almost pseudo-scientific answers to the problems that it that it posed to itself and as you as you noted his his problem with this was that it left out something he liked to call the human um you know the human agent the person that asks the philosophical question um and that and that hopes to gain something by uh by talking it through or thinking it through or 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 you know and um so I think that uh, that was, and that was something that he felt uh, literature was sort of grounded in the human, sort of inescapably, although, you know, I don't know what he would have had to say about some postmodern literature, which, which in many ways, I think, tried to imitate philo- the, uh, philosophy uh, or, or theory. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but I think he thought literature, he liked to go back to, he wrote a book about romanticism mm-hmm. um, and, uh you know, literature and film, obviously, and art in general, I think he just saw that that was a place where you, where you had, where you could have a kind of, he read it kind of philosophically, but a philosophy that was, um, filtered through the human and, and could not, could not, not acknowledge the human aspect. And, uh, and so that I think was another reason that I sort of, um, was interested in thinking about him alongside Wallace.
2: Hmm. Yeah, you've got that lot, like you start your intro by saying literature provides non-propositional philosophic knowledge. And so like deeply embedded in this stuff that we're, that we're reading, you know, for fun and pleasure and everything else is like, it's encoded with, with meaning. And like you say later that this is like Hal says at one point by relating my side of the story for me to me. And this kind of strikes me as like what fiction writers do for us and storytellers mm-hmm. do for us is they like tell us our story back to us in a way that we maybe haven't been able to articulate or recognize or um, were even quite aware of, but we maybe felt on some level. Um, so I love that that aspect of what you're talking about, where it full like Wallace's program makes philosophical stuff just like really applicable to the human situation on a really daily kind of basis.
1: Well, and I I would say too just like in the slightly um on the opposite side of that, it's like I think Wallace had an insight that, you know, I've sort of alluded to already about the people reading his books that we ourselves had become too philosophical, if that makes sense. Too philosophical yeah, in the yeah. sense Cavell meant. We ourselves had become theoretical in the way that we addressed our problems. And so, mm. and so some of the therapy was uh, sort of um, directed at philosophy. Some of the philosophical therapy was directed at philosophy, if that makes sense, at the bad kind of philosophy. Right, um, yeah, like taking shots. Yeah, yeah. And well, and, and,
2: and
0: actually, that that brings up to me what I think is the the linear end of Infinite Jest, which is you know the line of like, so then yo man, what's your story? Mm-hmm. And that's really <laughs> addressed at the reader, and that's a curiosity of like, okay, who are you? Yeah. And mm-hmm. it gets at sort of Wallace's tension between, you know, basic human connection, which you talk about a lot in brief interviews. I'll come back to that um, versus, you know, him living on his own sort of island of solitude in his own head. And that's really right. the beginning of Infinite Jest, where tra- Hal is trapped in his own head. And yet at the end of that chapter, yeah. there's this reaching out. There's this breaking out of solitude of like, uh, you know, the 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 ER guy of like, so, yo, what's your story? And, you know, Erditi is very much trapped. And so there's this big tension between, and maybe that's sort of metaphorical for the difference between literature and philosophy, but you know, that, that tension between connection versus solitude, you know, how, how did you see that playing out in, in the various, you know, philosophers we've talked about so far?
1: Well, yeah. No, I mean, first of all, I mean, yeah, I think that's absolutely right. And it's, um, it's so much of, you see that situation throughout his fiction of characters who are trapped in this way, you know, in, in their own minds. Um, in terms of the different philosophers, well, you know, I mean, Cavell, Cavell famously, he, uh, one of his big sort of uh, things that he did was he wanted to, he said, he said too often philosophers talk about knowledge and not acknowledgment. And, you know, Mm -hmm. he tried to replace knowledge with acknowledgement in a lot of his philosophy and this idea that many of the problems we have, when I say I'm in pain, what I want from you is not, uh, the the philosophical, the philosopher may hear that as, oh, now we're in the problems of other minds. Can I understand his pain? Meaning, can I know exactly what he's going through? And, And Cavell's insight was... The person who's in pain doesn't want you to know what they're going through. They want you to acknowledge it. And you don't have to know, actually, to acknowledge. Uh, you don't have to have perfect knowledge to acknowledge that another human being is in pain. We've all been in pain. You know, we actually know quite a bit if we've lived long enough what pain is like and yes you know it's we may not know the exact pain the person is in but but nevertheless there are various ways in which we can acknowledge another person's pain and um you know that was something that i think if you look at like in in infinite just again like the difference between um you know, Hal's Tennis Academy, which is so much uh, focused on knowledge and this sort of individualized forms of achievement and... Um and yeah, and knowledge, and you contrast it with with what was going on in AA, which is really a system of acknowledgement. You know, you're not even allowed to ask why or to get too deep into diagnosing. You know, the exact symptoms of someone, whatever. It doesn't matter. The point is, you you, you figure out how to acknowledge. You know, they, they they refer to it as identifying. That's a form of acknowledgement in a way. You know. Iding, yeah, iding, yeah. yeah. It's it doesn't mean you have perfect knowledge of what that person goes through. It means you make the effort to sort of uh, you lean toward them um, emotionally or or psychically. And I think that um, so that that, that's that's one of the issues that I think Cavell and you know he he interpreted that as a point of that you could get through Wittgenstein. But I think that I think that Cavell really developed it much more. much more completely than Wittgenstein did. And that was something that he saw as, again, being sort of, uh, you could cast it back against a whole philosophical tradition that goes back to Descartes that was obsessed with what can I know? You know uh, Des- <laughs> yeah. Descartes starts with the question, can I even know I'm sitting here you know, thinking or that I exist? And um, and then he says, the only thing I can know is that I'm thinking. So you have this very privileged relation of thinking as this kind of and and what is he thinking? What is thinking to him? It's looking for knowledge. Um, so I think that Cavell was trying to, um, you know, was really onto something about about a sort of trap that a whole a whole a whole tradition of philosophy that was trapped in its own head, so to speak, and um, mm-hmm. had become kind of. Uh, uh caught in the net of its own its own definition of what knowledge was which was uh you know not acknowledgement and not social
0: huh well, and if you smoked a massive amount of marijuana those questions about <laughs> what <laughs> Can you even know anything? That shit is really pilling.
1: You see um. scenes like that, right? Like he uses that, and it's it adjust, yeah,
0: it's like, oh shit. Um, but that thing about you know, I want you to acknowledge it. It reminds me of a great line from Pulp Fiction, which is like, "What we witnessed here was a fucking miracle," and I want you to acknowledge it. But <laughs> in, in my own day-to-day life, I felt like this is you know, it's a problem of empathy. Um, and you know, this is what, I think a big thing Wallace wanted to do in his fiction, which is like leap over the wall of self, put yourself in someone else's shoes and really experience their own life. And I know for me, maybe, um, Dave can relate to this. I don't know if you have kids, John, but like, uh, my wife had kids. She would text me or call me in the day and be like, you know, a kid just threw up on me and I, had bail out <laughs> and I had to change a diaper. And meanwhile, I'm like trying to, you know, write a presentation for work. And I'm like, oh, shit. you know, that must be really hard for you, honey. Like I'm acknowledging it, your pain. Like there's you know nothing I mean? that I can do
2: to help from this. No, patient. no, no. I just yeah, got to yeah, drop
0: yeah. everything and be like, shit, how do I acknowledge this pain? Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. in a way that is um, not dismissive, this authentic, but is not repetitive. You know, it's but really this is, struggle. But,
1: but let me just point out: this is there's a distinction between I think empathy and acknowledgement in this regard, because you don't actually have to feel what she feels to be able to acknowledge it.
0: That's true. Because right. I can't. I mean, that's like acknowledgement that I that I can't feel that way. But it's like you want to be sincere in that acknowledgement. Of you course. Know what I mean? Yeah. And of so course. The, the sincerity mm-hmm. of that acknowledgement is like. Um, I think that's a big thing you learn from therapy, maybe, and maybe I'm alone in this, but like, uh, you know, not minimizing someone else's experience, but saying like, hey, I'm I'm at least acknowledging it. Uh And, you know, because people are quick to just be like, well, let me tell you about me. But also,
1: yeah, but understanding also what's called for in different situations. I I have a friend who's, you know, who's a philosopher, and he used to tell this funny story about how his girlfriend who worked in a hospital... Uh, in in a pretty pretty rough hospital in Chicago for a little while, and she would come home and she would tell him about you know, oh, I was meeting with these people and, you know, uh, this really ob- obese woman and she has all these health problems because of that and blah, blah, blah. And and my, and my my friend, would my philosopher friend would say to her, well, you know, yes, I mean, obesity, it's an important problem. And why is it worse than here? And, you know, he would go into some philosophical speculation about it and she would scream at him. I don't want, you know, that's not what I'm <laughs> looking for. Just fucking acknowledge my I know, problem. Yeah, I, want right you right to, now, yeah. I want you to, to, to just be with me and listen and acknowledge what I, you know, what, what I went through and what this person is going through and um you know he he couldn't get it because he for him the impulse was to to think was to theorize um and uh so yeah i mean i think there there are all these candidates like yeah i I think that acknowledgement is a kind of discipline it's a habit you can get into it's an ability to to yeah to think about someone else it doesn't require empathy actually it just requires you know seeing another person and realizing them as real and 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 calling on you for acknowledgement and um and uh you know that's yeah that's something i think Wallace thought AA encouraged
0: well and that that actually yeah. leads me to a question that i have this is kind of a minor question related to all the other stuff but i felt like one of the most like philosophical things Wallace ever directly ethically appealed to was in his Kenyan graduation speech, and you don't really deal much with that. Did you consider bringing in some of his own, you know, that's not really fiction. It's not really, it is kind of therapy, though. Yeah. What what did you make of the speech? Did you intentionally leave it? Kind of
1: to I, the side. I sort of tried to leave the fiction, sort of. I mean, the nonfiction, sort of, on the margins of the book. I mean, there's a lot mm. of theorizing you can get from Wallace's own statements about his book, and I and I tried not to write anything yeah. that like directly contradicted things he said. But I did. I did want the book to really focus on what I thought was going on in his fiction, and what and what I thought was sort of the philosophical intent of why he wrote the way he did, and why he kind of told the kind of stories he did and told them the way that he did. Um. So uh, yeah, I sort of made a methodological decision to to to, to keep mm-hmm. some of that other stuff on the on the boundaries. I mean, I I, I see the speech as um, philosophical, but also quite spiritual in 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 a similar way to some of the material in Pale King. I mean, it, it's sort of I, I those are connected to me in my mind. It feels to me like in that phase of his writing, he was more attracted to the like I said to these more sort of direct. Um, Spiritual appeals And you know That's not uh, Yeah I mean I I was I I still find the speech Very moving Whenever I watch it But I But I think that um, That's sort of Where I see it In in, in his work A lot of the ideas In the speech Are in Pale King And so I try to Kind of treat them uh, Treat them there Through the novel Yeah Your
2: book is After all Subtitled The Therapeutic Fiction Of David Foster Wallace (laughs) Yes Not all of the things That David Foster Wallace wrote (laughs) Yeah Yeah
0: And uh, this is normally about the point we'd ask if if you have any final thoughts. And I feel like we've uh, we've delved into a lot. But um, Dave, what what else is on your list that you you had for John?
2: Yeah, well, this stuff that we're just talking about uh, comes back to me for a really interesting question that you raised in the introduction, John, which is that, you know, if it's if it's undeniable that Wallace viewed his work as more than just pleasure, as you say, more more than entertainment more than just beauty that there's like a a very moral quality to it which i totally have that take on wallace too then why aren't wallace's readers more virtuous (laughs) and you know then you bring up some of the deirdre coyle stuff and some of the the recent articles that we've been seeing that that blow back on wallace readers and things like that and so i'm kind of thinking like well how do we quantify this that's an interesting statement like um my proximity to to New York is pretty far. The last time I was in Brooklyn was two thousand nine, so I don't know what like, you know, the Wallace folks in Brooklyn are like these days. But the impression that we seem to be getting of them is quite negative through all these sort of think pieces that are coming out. Um, so where does that sort of take us as you know Wallace readers? Like if, if Wallace has this moral program, yeah, how do we apply that? Why aren't like why aren't we more moral? Um, <laughs> Are, are we degenerates, people who like Wallace? Like, I'm curious about that, cl- that claim that you make, that why aren't his readers more virtuous? Well, so, I'd love to hear you unpack that some more.
1: So I think that I ask it in the context. I, I don't quite a- I mean, the, I think the way it comes up is I'm saying this is a question that it's actually fair to ask. I mean, for some writers... You, well, first of all, yeah, so so for some writers, it might seem a silly question to ask. Like, no one would ask, why aren't Philip Roth's writer readers virtuous? You know, it's just yeah, yeah. the wrong question to ask about his readers. Um, right. You know, uh, so, so I think that um, – but I think because of the kinds of claims I'm making for Wallace as a writer and that he has this therapeutic project and moral project, I think it's fair to ask. And, you know, you, I go back – you know, in The Republic, Plato says – if Homer's such a great educator of of people, how come all of his followers are sycophants and you know whatever he, he, <laughs> he slanders them all and says they're all you know have no impulse control and whatever and you know so so I I don't think it's a totally ridiculous question to ask and that was that was a that was a, a nod toward that but I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't, I don't mean to endorse the view that we're not, that Wallace readers are not virtuous. I have no idea. I mean, I mean, yeah, exactly. I (laughs) I don't think, I don't believe that like a few stories, you know, from, you're right, from, from people who have had bad experiences with men in Brooklyn, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, who read lots of things, not just Wallace, um, uh, you know, can necessarily, um, prove anything about, about Wallace's readers. Um, I know that, uh, you know, I think that I know a lot of – I think there there is this uh, – there's a kind of caricature out there of a kind of Wallace pers- Reader who doesn't even really read his books but just likes to tell other people to read them or be seen reading them. And this <laughs> is a stereotype that I that I just yeah. like – I mean th- that person may exist but, you know, I've met so many people and, you know, doing this book when, it, when I did the event in Chicago, I mean it was filled with people that like – they certainly had read the books. I mean, these questions on yeah. page 322 when he says, I mean, like yeah. these are people <laughs> that had like deeply earnest and intense experiences with these books. So I don't mean to yeah. suggest that actually the readers are not virtuous. I have no idea. There's no way to measure that. What I try to say is that I think that ultimately um, – it's fair, you know, it it it's fair to wonder about the virtue of the books and maybe if, if you feel that you've run into Wallace readers who are not virtuous, ultimately you still you know, you still have to go back to the literature and you still have to look at it and see like um you know, how does it hold up? in light of some of the issues yeah. that people have brought up, both about Wallace's character and, and you know, the way he treated women or the fact that he committed suicide, yeah. uh, you know, as as Franzen so charmingly brought up in his New Yorker essay, you yeah. know, whether these are points against reading him, um, you know, I think it's, I'm sort of like predisposed to think that's not a great uh criteria on which to decide whether to read someone but I also think like you can go back to the books and and look at how does he deal with these issues and that's why I think brief interviews with hideous men is such a, a fascinating you know I think You know, Prefiners of Hideous Men is a book that, uh, it's so bizarre to me that it's come to be seen as some kind of like a mark of misogyny or something because its topic Mm. is misogyny and it's, I think the reader has to judge whether it handles it in a sensitive way, but I can, I can say obviously from my own reading of it, I think it's like a, a very sophisticated, um, attempt to therapeutically show his readers the kind of hideousness of these behaviors, um the behaviors that the men display uh, in, in the book. So, you know, mm-hmm. I think you have to go to the book and see if it can take it.
0: And if I could make a quick, a, a slight point about brief interviews with hideous men is that my impression of it has changed somewhat after looking at the archival materials for it. Mm. And I felt like it is very mm. um, thrown together and that it, uh, you know, half the book is not brief interviews with hideous men. It's like Tristan, I saw Sissy Narda Echo and uh, Datum Centurio and uh, Adult World stuff. And yeah. it's like if he wanted to do a whole book, Forever Overhead is in there. And like if he wanted to do a whole book of those brief interviews, he could have done it. But mm-hmm. he needed to get paid. <laughs> and he was like, I think I got enough material for another book. And about half of it are these uh, brief interviews, half of them are not, like Octet, which you mentioned in the yeah. book. It's like, it's very thrown together, person. man. It's like very not a cohesive project, in my opinion. And like, yeah. I love I love the book, but it's like, he, what he was trying to do there, I think he would be horrified to know that it was being interpreted as anything more than really like an extension of his larger f- fictional project. Because mm-hmm. that, that model of like the Q with the blank, that's an infinite jest. Yeah. And that's, that's something that's not like right. he just yeah. introduced in that book. But right. Oren is the had, first. Right. Oren is he, the first hideous
1: man, right? He's a hideous man. Right? And like, <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of hideous Orin's men. Oren's the first in and ben, ben Lerner's the last. Uh, and, <laughs>
0: and actually, that's a good segue. Let's get to Ben Lerner because you just published this thing in The Point, the new issue of The Point that's called... The Hatred of Literature, it's kind of a takeoff of Ben Lerner's title, The Hatred of Poetry. Right. Um, hmm. You know, for, for people who have read it, people who have not read it, we'll put a link to it in our show notes for this episode. Um, but Definitely. I really think people should go out. I was nodding my head a lot while I was reading it. Um, <laughs> part of it is probably based on publication of Topeka School, came out in like October-ish. Yeah, um, you know, I, We haven't talked about Ben Lerner yet, but like how do you see him fitting into this tradition?
1: <laughs> well, it's it's funny because Lerner is, you know, one of the reviews of Lerner – a few of the reviews of this last book talked about him as sort of a, a figure who's taken Wallace's advice about being more sincere as a writer. He himself, I think in 1004, he says something like, I'm going to take you on a journey from irony to sincerity, which was, uh, you know, Wallace's whole um, – mm-hmm. uh, talked about a lot. We haven't talked much about the new sincerity stuff, but, you know uh, – but uh, I've always hated Ben Lerner, and um, and, um, <laughs> and I can say that uh, the, the roots of it really go back to reading Atocha Station, his first novel, in something like I don't know t- 2012 or whatever that was, and and thinking, you know, uh, there there are things about this that remind me of Wallace. Like you could tell he's he was influenced by him, and you know, uh, is writing in his wake as as many as many American writers have, and. And yet, uh, I just hated it, and I was thinking, what do I hate about it? And I sort of, sort of think, like he's actually one of the hideous men. Like, like this is, this is someone who, um, you know, every he cannot have an emotion or a feeling without uh, theorizing about it. And he does it within the fiction, and there's this sort of armor of theory around everything he does, and he sort of tries to have sincerity along with it, like he'll do something sincere, but then there'll be like this pullback and this kind of theoretical uh, explanation of it, and... um, I just found something so, uh, gross about that project of trying to have both at once, you know, um, and, um, and, and so off-putting about it. And so, uh, that's sort of, you can see a line from that to the, to yeah, to the piece that I wrote where I, where I talk about how there's a kind of hatred of literature embedded in the way that Lerner actually writes literature, um, uh, with literature meaning a kind of, uh, yeah, an, an openness and attention to sort of one's own emotions and and, and and feeling and experience in the world and a willingness to, to be vulnerable uh, in print and not sort of um, – because that's the thing I think – this is my theory about what's really hideous about the hideous men. It's not that they um, – you know, uh, sometimes fail to commit or, or or sleep with more than one woman. I mean, these are things that lots of human beings do. I think that what's really hideous about them is the way they try to justify it with a kind of theoretical uh, explanation. They're always ready with some kind of pseudo-postmodern, um, you know, self-conscious way of explaining what mm-hmm. they're doing, what, the, what they've done. And it's the explanation of what's really just basic, uh immoral or inconsiderate behavior it's the explanation that's really hideous and um mm. and so that's that's the thing that i immediately saw in learners novels was this <sighs> kind of like uh huh. This explanation, as if somehow this like added to the sophistication of what he was doing, and 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 the critics loved it. But um, but I I yeah I don't know. I had a very strong yeah, I, to I it.
0: I actually totally disagree on this whole thing, and I think that um, <laughs> I think that leaving the Atocha station is really more in like a European model of novel writing, mm-hmm. and it's very much of like the flaneur style, where there's like a guy just sort of wandering around philosophizing. Wandering. And Drinking coffee you know, and smoking. L- smoking weed, going to museums and being in <sighs> Europe and, you know, a sort of fish out of water story. Um, and so I, I got a totally different thing out of it. And especially him being a poet first, I found interesting in 1004 where he goes to marfa and there's a great thing about walt whitman mm-hmm. um so i i thought it was really interesting and i encourage everyone like i say we'll put a link to it in there <laughs> the hate hatred of literature because i think it really does engage with what um learners the point that he's making in the hatred of poetry uh and really complete polar opposite of what wallace is i didn't really relate him to wallace at all so i i thought it was really interesting Uh, Even what you were just saying right now about putting him in that tradition of like kind of a hideous man who is like kind of shitty towards women and who is like not a great person. And like I don't even really think a sympathetic narrator in any of his books. Like I don't find him really sympathetic like at all.
1: You don't find find Lerner's narrator sympathetic.
0: Right. Yeah. No. no, Well,
1: I don't I don't think he and you don't think Lerner thinks they're supposed to be sympathetic.
0: I don't know about that I I think that's a different question And I I guess I'm less interested in that Than um, You know What he's trying to do there I think is um, Sincere on his part But I, I don't find him sympathetic And It's it's probably reflects poorly on him
1: yeah, no, I mean, I mean, I agree with you about the European tradition, and I I don't mean to say that, like, Wallace was even the main influence on Lerner, uh, you know, particularly in, in Atocha. I think that there is that kind of flaneur style, but I think that uh, in terms of his poetic background and the kinds of things he says in hatred of literature, there's also, like, a very strong sort of—he's also a product of the kind of postmodern— um, you know this kind of disenchantment with language and disappointment. Um, that's very much, uh, and this kind of, yeah. And, and as I, I guess, maybe you don't agree with totally. me, the, not, the, the and urge and to theorize, is a,
0: yeah. Well, Topeka School is a lot about that, like failure of language to do anything, and right there's a lot of therapy in there that is um, sort of problematic or related to, I think, you know toxic masculinity and failure of communication. I think what he's doing now is a little more interesting. If he was sort of stagnating, I think that he's evolving. Um, and he's interesting for me to watch, but I, I don't, I don't know. I guess I approach him in a really different way than I would approach stuff that Wallace did. Um, I, I just think it was interesting. I, I think your your essay was fascinating. I actually found my head nodding along a lot to what you wrote, and that's why I yeah. want other people to go out there. Yeah, check it out. Them. I mean, my essay actually doesn't
1: mention out. doesn't mention Wallace at all, but uh, but it right, is. Right, uh, right. Uh, yeah, but, but it that's is, our whole fucking podcast. So <laughs> yeah, but, him. you know, I wanted, to, <laughs> I wanted to give the Wallace angle on it. But uh, yeah. but yeah, I, and because there are people I did have people who say to me, you know, no, Learner is doing the new sincerity. That's that's he's taking Wallace's advice. Um, I don't
0: think so. I, I don't think he gives a shit about new sincerity at all.
1: Well, okay. he he does talk about sincerity in 1004. There is this whole thing about I'm going to I'm going to take you to sincerity. Um so i don't know it's it, but there's...
0: it's a di- I mean, to me that just felt totally different than like when wallace is talking about that you know damn near 25 30 years ago now yeah like, it seems totally different With in, like McCaffrey. the context of it now it just seems totally different to me and i, I guess i
1: well, well one of the points that i make in the piece is that he what he what he becomes sincere about his politics which is which is yeah. interesting to think about uh I mean I think things have changed so much. Yeah, the context of like when Wallace was writing, uh I mean there was I think a kind of yearning in Wallace's time for the ability to be sincere in something bigger than yourself and you know, politics was one of the candidates for that. But but there wasn't
0: yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think that what Wallace you know, he wrote in this Believer interview two thousand four about campaigning for John Kerry and he wrote in 2007 for The Atlantic about sacrificing and the, the sort of intro to the best American essays and all but I don't think that he put that into his fiction the way that, that Lerner is doing. Oh no
1: definitely and, not no yeah
0: and that the sort of Lerner approach is
1: definitely not but I you put But you might think someone who says, well, how could I be sincere in a way that Wallace wasn't? Wallace was calling for, but he never got there. You might think – someone might think, well, now we have this like renewed – political movement on the left, you know, post-Occupy that like, just nothing like that even existed when Wallace was writing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, you just could John Kerry. Right. I mean, who could be sincere for John Kerry? So, you <laughs> know, like Christ. You know. Seems like
0: another generation. <laughs> yeah. It? So, I mean, yeah. so, I
1: mean, now you've got, you've got these, these things that sort of make a claim on your, on your sincerity, if you're in the sort of liberal left circles that Lerner is in, um, and so I, I think you could see how someone might think this is a way to sort of to sort of move forward the project that Wallace outlined, but didn't actually uh, fully perform. I mean, I think I think it's a failure. I you know I I don't think yeah. he actually I don't think it's right actually the way he does it. But I but I but you could see how someone might think that.
0: Yeah. Um. I, again, I really enjoyed your book. I really loved it. And yeah, that's great. Uh, I, I hope that everyone who listens goes and picks it up and engages with it. Uh, I think it's, there's a lot to, to mull over there. And I really appreciate you coming um, on the show today. Is there anything we haven't mentioned that you wanted to bring up today, John?
1: Uh, no, no. I mean, thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And, uh, and I, you know, I've known about this podcast for a long time, so I'm, I'm, uh, Excited to be on and, and yeah, and just and reach uh, yeah. I mean, who else? Who else is this book for other than your listeners? Um, yeah, ba- I think you're right. Basically, <laughs> so, so yeah, I hope they I hope they enjoy it too and, and get something out of it.
2: Awesome, John. We'll we'll definitely post a link for where people can go pick it up um, through Stanford Publishing. Yeah, that would be a great. publisher and uh yeah thanks so much again for joining us man it's been great um in other exciting wallace news as we sort of wind down here wallace uh 2020 conference in austin in june this year is coming up and matt you we just got to announce who the keynote speaker is going to be this week didn't we
0: that's right i um am proud to say our keynote address will be by jennifer egan author of uh, visit to the goon, visit from the goon squad Manhattan Beach many other great books I really like yeah. "The keep and look at me uh, and she's writing uh, an original paper for this conference about yeah. uh, journalism and fiction I'm really excited to to hear that and yeah. we have worked out a pretty good schedule of everyone who's going to be presenting I think there's going to be a ton of great things so if you want to um, to register, we will put a link in the show notes as well. I'm, I'm in. Um, I'm in. You should come. <laughs> then uh, it's going to be. There's also going to be a display, uh, a selection from Wallace's work, uh, in the main gallery of the Ransom Center, and uh, there will be a lot of other special events at the Ransom Center and around UT. This is June fourth, fifth, and sixth, twenty twenty. In Austin, our website is dfw2020conference.org, and there's a registration link on there. Uh, we have multiple options for registration, for housing. Um, there are The CFP is closed, so we're not taking any more papers. We've got enough presentations. We really had an overwhelming response, I <laughs> think, to our CFP. So
2: yeah. I what think was it, 48, a, 48 yeses went
0: out, Matt? Is that the number? Uh I think more than that. Somewhere in there. In the 50s. Cool. We had a really great response to the CFP. Tons of people submitted. Um, And so we're really excited about the conference this year. It's the first time we've had it in Austin. Um, You know, it's been in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois for the past six years. And we've kind of um, been working on this plans for like a year. And we're, like I say, we're just at the point where we're happy to announce the keynote. Jennifer Egan, it's a huge deal. Thanks to the Ransom Center. (laughs) And that event, if you live in Austin, that event is actually free and open to the public. It will be at the AT&T Conference Center. And then that evening, we will have a reception at, uh, like I say, in the main gallery of the Ransom Center starting at about 7.30 p.m. So you're free. If you live in Austin, please come on June 5th, 2020. Come see us. Uh, And that's really where a lot of my attention is going right now, Dave, is making sure that that conference (laughs) is Um, the best it can be
2: yeah um, you are doing the legwork, my friend uh,
0: so and I will say we'll have a lot of other things on sale Jennifer Egan will sign books that night and we'll have books on sale um, mainly in Goon Squad in Manhattan Beach and we will have other things for sale at the conference in, which will be in Patton Hall on the campus and at the conference registration booth there will be uh, some DFW Society stuff for sale. We're going to have a lot of fun events, actually like a film night one night and yeah. uh, a lot of socialization. It's not just like, you know, we're going to get to experience Austin. There's going to be a lot of just soaking it up, being in Austin in early June. It's going to be a great time.
2: So. Yeah. Uh, that's who our can plug make for the conference. Should go. <laughs>
0: that's my plug for yeah. the conference. I'm sorry it went on too long, but.
2: No, you're good, man. You're fine, sir. Um, in addition, uh, we want to thank, as we wrap up here, we want to thank some new patrons this month. We want to thank our friend Jonah Stutz. And thank you also so much to Kevin Adams for your guys' support Jonas for our Stutz, show. Jonah Stutz, man. Stutz, yeah. I hope we can he's see Jonah
0: soon. He's a, great, he's a great friend. Great friend.
2: Yeah, he's fantastic. He was in Victoria last year, and we went out for uh, for nachos and some beers, and it was fantastic, him and his girlfriend and I. Uh also uh John if people want to get in touch with you through Twitter, through check out The Point magazine, where can they find you online?
1: Yeah, uh th- thanks. Um they should definitely go to thepointmag.com. Uh that's that's the best place to find um, you know, uh the best writing on the internet. And uh and, um, <laughs> bold play I like it. Boom. <laughs> yeah, for me, uh for me I'm at at Baskinjohn on uh on Twitter. Cool. Um that's about it.
2: Brad, we'll link to all that stuff. We'll link to your on Hatred of Literature and uh, to your book as well. Uh, Matt, if people want to get in touch with us, where can they find us?
0: We are Concavity Show on Instagram and Twitter, and ConcavityShow at gmail.com. People who email us, please email us. We love it. Uh, we, we've gotten some great emails lately, and we love to hear from everyone. If you have questions about the conference, though, I would say email me at info at this dfwsociety.org um We also are on Facebook somewhere. I think it's facebook.com Yeah, just type in Great the Great Concavity.
2: Concavity on Facebook. You'll find us. <laughs> um, um, speaking so, of good emails, I want to just give a shout out to listener uh, David seiler Him and I have had a very robust email correspondence in the mo- in the last month or so, mostly about skateboarding. Actually, uh, he's a skateboarder from Germany, and I uh, that was a big part of my life for a long time. And as a result of our conversations and some skate videos that he shared with me, I went out here in New Zealand and bought a skateboard for $300 New Zealand. (laughs) So a bit more expensive than usual, like it would be back home. But uh, I've been riding it around at some skate parks a bit. Uh, I tore my hands open the other day, hit a rock and went flying and and shredded my palms. So, David, thanks so much, man, for that, (laughs) for the conversation. It's been awesome um and of course as always we want to thank robin o'neill for her art associated with our show and the band parquet courts for their song instant disassembly and john thanks again so much for coming on in. it has been great talking to you thanks again for your book it's an amazing contribution to the scholarship around wallace that we're you know finding ourselves so invested in on this show so thanks again really appreciate it
0: hey before before we leave i just thought of a final question which i want to ask everyone but sure yeah great no problem uh I am reading the book Ducks Newberry Port by Lucy Ellman. Anyone who's reading mm-hmm. that, please email me or email us at concavityshow at com so we can talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to ask both of you, Dave and John, um, what are you reading right now? And do you have any recommendations for us like as of the very moment?
1: <laughs> oh, uh, well, you know, I we, uh god i gotta think i'm reading sources of the self by charles taylor <laughs> it's, it's a good book um but other than that in terms of fiction um you know we just published our first fiction for the first time in the point and okay. one of the we published an excerpt from a book from nine from uh, uh 2017 by bud smith a new jersey writer called work it's really like a memoir about his um his time working i mean he, he's worked his whole life like at you know in in um in factories and in uh you know different kinds of electrical plants and stuff, and he basically writes these stories like on his phone it, during his breaks. And and a lot of the writing, he never went to you know he's not a product of MFA schools or anything like that. And uh, but he's an amazing writer, and um, it's it's someone we sort I sort of or I discovered at least uh, for the first time while we were looking for fiction to publish in the first issue. And uh, hmm. so he's someone that uh, that I that I, that I would that I would recommend. I think it, I think it's a great book that book.
2: Amazing. I'll definitely cool. check it out. I'll, I'll yeah. check that. Out. Yeah. Uh, I am currently reading Let the Great World Spin by Colin McCann. It's a New York. Uh, I just book. started New, it. It's yeah. A New York. Uh, book. The, the opening is amazing. It's like one of the best set pieces I feel like I've read in a long time, hmm. where there's someone up on a building and it looks like they're maybe going to jump, and like the throngs of people down below are yelling up at him, and the the like fervor around what's going to happen. And then it's he Philippe Petit, isn't it? Philippe Petit, a, a, a right? tightrope walker. Uh, yeah, Philippe Petit. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. The name hasn't been revealed yet. But is that what the the documentary yeah, film was based Man on? On, Man Wire. on Wire. Yeah. yeah okay. Totally. I figured it was probably probably connected. Um, yeah. So that's off to a good start. I just finished Stoner, um, like John three Williams. days ago. John Williams John Lewis, which Stoner, I really yeah. liked. Yeah, that was good. And I tried to get. I tried to get duck's newberry port at the library uh, a few days ago but it was out so i'm looking forward to reading that very soon matt and i can catch up with you on it
1: are you liking duck's newberry port matt i
0: I highly recommend it i'm in love with the book uh (laughs) i'm like yeah i've heard nothing but good things 340 pages in and wow um, i i'm absolutely just savoring it you know it's like a thousand pages and
1: uh i have it on my shelf yeah uh,
0: I'm really enjoying it. Like, it's it's a totally different reading experience than almost anything else I've ever read. Uh, yeah, it sounds like it. I absolutely enjoy it. And it's like, that's rare for me because, I mean, I've read some stuff lately that, like, I felt like I needed to read, but it was hard to read. And this is, like, so pleasurable and interesting. It feels very much of the moment right now. Hmm and uh i talked to our our friend and previous guest matt luder about this book and he's read it and loved it and um Mm -hmm. uh, yeah i just want to talk to more people about it it's a sign of a good book i guess but
2: um sure is well that's why we're here hey (laughs) matt i recommend it
0: so anyways i'm always looking for that i always wanted to hear what other people who you know i like their taste what they're reading so it's good to hear from both of you and uh you know thanks again john for being on the show we've really enjoyed this i feel like uh i could easily go another like two hours i feel like we just got started (laughs) i have other questions you know we oh yeah when i when i first started reading your book actually in the first like chapter uh i probably underlined like 50 sentences and i was like (laughs) oh you know i was like yes yes question mark no did you say that? What? Like, a, <laughs> I was very so To me, it started off really great. And like, I didn't mm-hmm. even get to any of that tonight. So you know, take a rain check on doing it again. I
1: hope. All right. We'll, we'll meet in Austin. I would love it. I would love it, man. There as you have go. To say,
0: I got, we got more to talk about. So,
1: All <laughs> right. Cool. Thanks so much for doing this. It was great. All right. Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks for listening. Catch me now
2: as I say. To darkness
1: that's um, okay, kind of cool. a
0: long-running gag on our show about me hating Skype and it's uh, <laughs> the single worst app ever
1: it, it is the worst I thought and yet we continue yeah, I to thought we'd be further there. in human civilization by <laughs> now but
2: I know right like it's been around for 15 almost 20 years this thing right. and it's still like no advancement since yeah. it started.